Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Heart disease in the U.S. remains the number one leading cause of death for men and women. According to the CDC, one person dies every 36 seconds from cardiovascular disease. One in every four deaths is caused by heart disease and costs the U.S. over $350 billion every year. By the time someone sees a cardiologist, they've already had a cardiac-related event. Risk factors include high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, drinking too much alcohol, living a sedentary life, eating unhealthy foods, and here's a couple of risk factors that you may not be correlating with heart disease, poor sleep, and menopause in women. Now that I'm in perimenopause at age 54, I think about the stats on women who are transitioning through their menopausal years and how the risk of heart disease increases as our body's estrogen hormone levels dip to almost nothing. Even after, even with a mother, heart disease in the U.S. remains the number one leading cause of death for men and women. According to the CDC, one person dies every 36 seconds from cardiovascular disease. One in every four deaths is caused by heart disease and costs the U.S. over $350 billion every year. By the time someone sees a cardiologist, they've already had a cardiac-related event. Risk factors include high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, drinking too much alcohol, living a sedentary life, eating unhealthy foods, and here's a couple of risk factors that you may not be correlating to heart disease, poor sleep, and menopause in women. Now that I'm in perimenopause at age 54, I think about the stats on women who are transitioning through their menopausal years and how the risk of heart disease increases as our body's estrogen levels dip to almost nothing. Even with having a mother who had breast cancer and survived, I worry more about heart disease for myself and try to optimize my health on a daily basis. In 2013, the NIH published a study confirming that between 2002 and 2011, approximately 50,000 women died as a result of dropping their hormone replacement therapy due to misguided results from the Women's Health Initiative study in the early 1990s. Still, to this day, many women fear taking estrogen because they are stuck in an old medical paradigm that they will induce breast cancer. But of those 50,000 deaths, that were they, those were caused by heart disease and not breast cancer. My guest today is Dr. Michael Twyman, an integrative functional medicine cardiologist whose main focus is on the prevention and early detection of heart disease. It was during his years in medical school that he became passionate about how the heart functioned and what could be done to prevent heart attacks and strokes. Utilizing the best of conventional medicine, integrative functional medicine, quantum medicine, and biohacking, Dr. Twyman works to get to the root cause of your cardiovascular issues and live your optimal life. Dr. Twyman and I are going to talk about all things heart disease and prevention, including medical myths around cholesterol, labs and tests that you should get included with your doctor visits, the relationship between menopausal women, hormones, and heart health, lifestyle, including diet and exercise, and some very cool red light therapy hacks that Dr. Twyman is known for. 
A little medical disclaimer before we dive into the podcast. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So we've got a great podcast coming up with Dr. Twyman. I'm really excited to talk to him about heart health, especially as a perimenopausal woman. So sit back, relax, open your mind and enjoy the podcast. Welcome Dr. Twyman. It's such a pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited to dive deep into heart health, especially when it comes to menopausal women. Um, But first, I want to ask you, what was the pivotal moment when you decided that conventional cardiology was not the direction you wanted to go, and then you shifted to a more functional medicine approach? It's a great question. In 2012, I completed my uh, three years of cardiovascular training at St. Louis University. And I was really close to deciding to do an extra year of interventional cardiology, where you would be in the cath lab the majority of the time, fixing people having heart attacks or severe obstructions. But in my third year of training, I had some family members who had some issues with arthritis and GI issues and headaches and found out that they were gluten sensitive. And that was kind of the first time I ever came upon that there could be a non-celiac cause of these types of symptoms. And so then really kind of discovered functional medicine at that point. And so then kind of took a little bit of a detour to look at lipids from a different standpoint, because we kept seeing the same patients come back with procedures over and over again, and they had quote, normal cholesterol. So that's when I first really started discovering the advanced lipid profiles. And then, you know, it's been 10 years since that time and uh, just keep adding to my knowledge base. But what is the main difference between conventional medicine approaches to heart disease and a functional medicine approach to heart disease? So the way I would kind of describe it is that, you know, traditional medicine is reactionary. You know, you have the heart attack, it's an emergency, they go in there, they fix it, and then they say, okay, do these things and hopefully you don't have it again. Where a functional medicine approach or an integrated medicine approach is kind of the term I tend to like to use a little bit better, is that you're integrating the best of every world and saying, okay, this is the root cause of what actually caused this event. And, you know, we're going to do some different things from a lifestyle standpoint nutrition, exercise, stress management, sleep, and really try to figure out why this happened and prevent the second event. Or ideally you meet your cardiologist way before you're going to the cath lab and you find these type of risk factors, you know, 10 years before that event would ever have happened. Right. So are your patients coming to you because they've already had a cardiac event and now they're just looking for more answers or are you are your patients coming to you for more general care? And then you get to explain to them about prevention. So the majority of my patients are proactive. So they've not previously had an event and an event would just be, you know, described as somebody who's already had a stent, had a heart attack, had bypass surgery or a stroke. Um, Now I do have a few patients that have had that knock on wood. Not many of them have had it while they've been under my care, but I sometimes get them after the fact and do the, you know, the deep dive to figure out why did it happen and help them prevent their second events. Yeah. That's interesting that you're getting them before anything goes wrong because you're a cardiologist. So heart disease is still the number one cause of death in the U S for both men and women. And what are we not getting right? 
Well, there's more than just high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, and obesity that can drive cardiovascular disease. There may be up to 400 different potential risk factors for uh, plaque forming in your arteries. And I usually teach patients that it's, you know, takes a combination of three things. It has to start with endothelial dysfunction, inflammation, and having ApoB containing particles get retained in the artery wall. And we'll go through these topics as we go, but it really starts with that endothelial dysfunction. And the endothelium, it's one cell thick, it coats the inner lining of your arteries. It's approximately 60,000 miles of arteries in your body. So the surface area of your endothelium is about six tennis cords. And that's mm. kind of like the air traffic controller between what's floating through the lumen of your blood vessel and what has access to the artery wall itself. And heart disease or cardiovascular disease really starts when that endothelial barrier is damaged. And how is it starting to get damaged? It's a great question is that there's many, many things that can damage it, but some of the biggest ones are going to be high inflammation, high oxidative stress, high insulin, high blood sugar infections. So viruses can attack the glycocalyx, which is kind of like the gel coat that sits on top of the endothelium. And when that endothelium gets impaired, it doesn't release something called nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is very important for arterial health. The nitric oxide can cause the artery to dilate. So your blood pressure stays normal, but nitric oxide also acts like a nonstick surface. So things don't stick to your blood vessels to begin with. Hmm. Okay. So a lot of this also has to do with lifestyle factors. Very much so. I mean, 80% of, you know, heart disease can be prevented by leading an optimal lifestyle. How long does it take before you start seeing damaged endothelial um, within the artery? So endothelial dysfunction can happen, you know, approximately 10 years before you're ever going to have a clinical event. Hmm. Um, so the endothelium gets damaged. You start building up these small plaques in the arteries, like little volcanoes and then the volcano ruptures and you have a heart attack or stroke. So atherosclerosis generally actually starts in your teens or twenties, but doesn't become clinically evident to your 40, 50, 60 years old. So the earlier that you can find the endothelial dysfunction at present and fix it, you don't go down the pathway of developing significant amounts of plaque in the arteries. And who's even thinking that way when we're in our twenties, right? Yeah. None of, none of us. Yeah, not too many people. I mean, some of the, the biohackers and the health optimizers are starting to look at it a little bit earlier, or, you know, a lot of the patients I work with, they have family members who've had events and they find me through social media or some other manner. And they're like, I don't want to end up like my dad or my grandpa. What testing can I do to tell you what's going on inside right now? Because unfortunately, half the time people have heart attacks, they had no symptoms until they had the heart attack. Right. And that's what happened to me. I started this journey of being a self-biohacker when I was 16, so a long, long time ago. And my dad had a heart attack, ultimately died. But for probably 20 years, he had stints and open heart surgery and, you know, all the arteries moved around. I mean, he, but he was also a smoker. He didn't eat well. He lived a sedentary life. And I remember at 16 saying to myself, I don't want to be like that. Like, and he wasn't that old at that time, right? Me being 16. And I just, the whole vision of him just made me turn on a different path. And my family thought it was absolutely so weird, but you know, you're I, intuitive. I, I, I feel good now. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it's, you're investing in your health and it's a right. day by day battle. And the earlier that you kind of figure that out, 
yeah. you know, the easier you can kind of pull the levers that might've been going against you. So, you know, genetics is right. important. I'm sure we'll probably talk more about it, but yeah. your environment makes a bigger impact on your cardiovascular health. Absolutely. So then somebody comes in, they're being proactive, they're seeing you, they're your patient. What are some of the labs that you run that maybe a conventional cardiologist or a primary care physician would not run? So I do a fairly comprehensive battery of labs uh, the first time patients come and work with me. Uh, it's, yes, it's going to include the traditional lipid panel, but you need to know more about what's transporting that cholesterol around the system. There's something called lipoprotein. So you can do a lipoprotein analysis. There's an ApoB, uh, apolipoprotein B, which is also a good surrogate for you know, your main quote cholesterol number that you want to look at. There's different inflammatory markers, uh, high sensitivity CRP, myeloperoxidase, LPPLA2, oxidized phospholipids, oxidized LDL, uh, and then looking at a whole host of metabolic parameters. So, you know, fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C, uric acid, homocysteine, and then for the right population, looking at uh, genetic markers. And so if someone is still going to a conventional GP and they're not getting a deep dive, is it like reading it's like reading a book that has 15 chapters and you're only really looking at maybe four chapters. You're just not getting the full picture. Correct. And it's, you know, I really was saying, you know, there's five major cardiovascular risk factors, you know, high blood pressure, high, high quote, high cholesterol, mm -hmm. you know, diabetes, smoking and obesity. But if you don't do the right tests, you don't find the right answers and the advanced lipid profiles just let you dive deeper and get the, some more of the root causes because, you know, the people that have those other five factors and they think they're completely normal and still have events, they're like, how could this possibly happen? You know, I'm healthy, I thought. Well, they may have lipoprotein little a, they may have very high homocysteine because they have an issue with methylation. So you have to really go looking for these things in that, that population. And so most conventional doctors, as you know, will look at total cholesterol on someone's lipid profile and they will see it at like, you know, let's say 240 and they get very, you know, upset about this and they immediately turn to statins. What's wrong with looking at total cholesterol? Why is, why is that not really the protocol or should be the protocol anymore? Sure. Because, you know, that's essentially using 1970s technology when we have, you know, 2020 technology to be able to look at things and cholesterol is a very essential nutrient that your body produces. And if without cholesterol, you're not alive. So mother nature, whatever you believe in, did not put cholesterol into you to give you a heart attack or stroke, but cholesterol is this waxy substance that just cannot float in the liquid blood. That would be like oil and vinegar. So the liver has to make these things called lipoproteins. And for anybody watching the video, I usually show patients a tennis ball in my office. So it's the spherical uh, particle that fills up full of the cholesterol, triglycerides, which are energy, fat-soluble vitamins, the A's, the D's, the E's, the K's and then different building blocks for the cells. So they're like cargo ships or cars. These are what are ferried through your arteries to the organs. So you know, your muscles, they need energy. So the liver pumps these things out, sends them through the blood vessels. The muscles then download the information, suck out the energy and send it back to the liver. So cholesterol is just a passenger in the lipoprotein. It's the lipoproteins that determine if the plaque is actually going to build up in the arteries. And is, our liver makes cholesterol, but we also bring in dietary cholesterol. And for so many, for decades, right, we've been told do not eat cholesterol containing foods. 
So that has been kind of the standard uh, dietary recommendations for many years, but even the traditional, uh, you know, cardiovascular outlets are now kind of, you know, walking that uh, recommendation back because your dietary cholesterol, you know, very few of it is actually going to get absorbed from the intestines. Um, you know, there's a difference between esterified and unsterified cholesterol. So I won't go too deep into that part, but if people want to know more about that, they can, they can talk to me later. But essentially, if you don't eat cholesterol in your diet, because cholesterol is so essential, your body will just realize that you're not getting much through your diet and your liver will just make up the difference. It will make more mm. for you. Mm. So when we eat the cholesterol, there's something called a hyperabsorber. There's a test, a specific test for that. Tell us about that test, which I've had done. So I know I'm a hyperabsorber. I want you to share what that is with my listeners. Sure. So, you know, there's generally three main levers that you can address if somebody has an abnormal lipid profile and the right context that you should be trying to modulate it. So, you know, use the right tool for the job. So if somebody has already had a stent, bypass surgery, stroke, heart attack, you're going to be more aggressive with that person. Now, if you're a younger woman, you know, 30 year old woman with quote high cholesterol and do not have plaque in the arteries, you're probably just going to be working with lifestyle and maybe some supplements at that point. Don't pull out the big guns because there's nothing going on in the artery wall, but it starts with these lipoproteins that are made in the liver. So how many of these cars or cargo ships are your liver making? So do you produce too many of them? So too many cars go out on the highway. The second lever that you can pull. So there, on, wait, there you're talking about particle size, correct? Not yet. So okay. we'll talk about the particle size in a second. So we'll okay. get to the hyperabsorption part. So do you hyperproduce? So okay. if you have too many cars, then there's mechanisms you can do to kind of cool down the number of cars coming out of the liver. The second step or second lever you can pull on is, you know, does the liver clear the blood effectively of these lipoproteins? So it's like put, the liver puts out like a catcher's mitt and then grabs it. So it uses a receptor grabs the particle and pulls it back into the liver. So this is the second step. The particle is now in back to the liver. It gets put into the bile, puts it into the intestine, and then the body's supposed to get rid of it. But in approximately 20% of the population, there's a receptor, the Neiman-1-Piclec receptor. Think of it like a bouncer at the door that sees this particle about to be sent out the back door and says, this thing is still perfectly good opens up the gate and allows that particle to come back into the portal circulation. Basically mm. it sends it back to the liver and now it's recycling through the system again. So that person is hyper absorbing the sterols from their intestine. Again, it's about one in five people this happens to. And so these are the people that there are certain medications that work better for them, but it is a little bit different. That depends on if you're completely supplement and drug naive and you're a hyper absorber, or if you've already been you know, standardized or otherwise, you know, uh, put on medications to affect your lipids. Because again, I said cholesterol is such an essential, you know, compound that your body needs is that if you start shutting down the production with a statin or, you know, fish oil or niacin, the body's response may be to start reabsorbing more of it from the gut. So it's already a special form that the body can reabsorb it. It's not the same as you're just eating more cholesterol and it's going through it. It's that it's already in this esterified process. So, you know, it does make a little bit of difference if you, you know, are on treatment or not treatment to say you're a hyperabsorber. But in the case where people want to make a nutrition change, it's really good to know what your baseline is because if you're already a hyperabsorber and then you go on a high fat keto diet, 
you may have excessively high particles made with that reabsorption of all that sterols and fats. And then talk about the particle size, because these are that's also a test that's not included in conventional um, blood work. Sure, and uh, I think it's a little bit more nuanced now over the years, but um, there are different sizes of these particles. So again, if you're watching on video, I usually show patients mm -hmm. a tennis ball. This would be a large, fluffy type A, you know, uh, lipoprotein, and then the small, dense uh, LDL particles are type B. You know, I usually show people a golf ball. So it used to be thought like if you had big, fluffy, you know, LDL particles, those were not atherogenic. You know, they can't get through the endothelium. If you think of the endothelium as a tennis net, the tennis ball is not going through that net. But if a golf ball gets up to the tennis net, it's going to sneak through the tennis net and it's going to get stuck down in there. But it really doesn't work that way exactly. It's just more that um, the particle count matters more than the size. So if you have a lot of particles, that's the risk factor that you're trying to modulate. It doesn't matter as much if they're big or large, it's just how many are there. But the two things that typically happen when people have high levels of small LDL, it's either that they're insulin resistant, you know, they're headed towards prediabetes or diabetes, and their body's gonna make more of these small particles to package mm -hmm. up the, the triglycerides, which are stored energy, or there are some genetic uh, abnormalities that will force people to make more of these small particles. And the smaller particles, they have a longer resonance time. What that means is they just hang out in the blood uh, vessels for approximately four to five days where the big, large, fluffy ones, maybe they're only there for 24 hours or 48 hours. And it's just time under tension. The longer they stick around in the blood vessels circulating, the more exposure to oxygen and other things that are gonna modulate them. So the, the smaller particles tend to oxidize more and it's mm -hmm. that oxidized damaged cholesterol that's really like, toxic waste to the artery wall, it's going to build up the plaques in the arteries if you have a lot of oxidized LDL. So how important is it to get these tests done? And at what age should you get these tests done? Because for me, it's test don't guess, right? We want to gather as much information as possible about everything so that we can plan a, the best protocol personalized for your needs. Yes, I mean, I'm definitely gonna have a biased answer in that I've you know, developed my practice to be all you know, proactive. So everybody who comes to see me gets these type of tests, but I'm you know, very data-driven as well. And it is a thing like it's, you know, it's basically like check engine lights. You, know, you just wanna see something way earlier before you know, the, the brakes go out. So uh, this type of testing should probably generally start you know, in your twenties if you, you know, or mm. uh, have somebody who will start ordering this for you. But probably by bare minimum, by age 40, when the, you know, the major of the risk factors start really kicking in, that's really when you want to start thinking about this. And so you were talking about the ketogenic uh, high fat diet. I'm actually a carnivore and mm -hmm. I am a hyper absorber. So I do have to take something to help combat that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, I don't take a statin. Um, I take Zetia, which a lot of people don't know about Zetia. What yeah, are your thoughts on that? Now it's been around for you know, quite a while. I'm, I, you know, um, I graduated medical school back in 2002, and we've been using it, you know, prior to that. So, you know, it's been out for 20 years. So, uh, Zetamide is the generic name for it. Yeah. It used to be known as Zetia. Um, it's a medication that blocks that Neiman one pick like receptor in the gut. So essentially it closes the door and doesn't let the bouncer open the door back up. So the way I tell patients is that your body's already decided you're supposed to get rid of these lipoproteins. This just ensures that that happens and that your body doesn't hijack it back into the system.
Right. So a, a few years ago when I decided to go carnivore and I was on a keto diet for many years, I of course, you know, had the conversation with my uh, functional medicine doctor, which is something I recommend to all of my clients before you make a lifestyle change, such as a diet, always talk to your doctor, right? Get them on board. They're part of your team. And so she said, great, I'm all, I'm, I'm going to support you in it, but in six months, I need you to come in and we're going to do run more blood labs, comprehensive blood labs. And I also want you to get a CAC test. So can you explain why she would want me to go get a coronary artery calcium score and what that is? Sure. So the, uh, the CT coronary calcium score, calcium scan, it's a low dose radiation CT scan looking at your coronary arteries. So your coronary arteries are the arteries that sit on the outside of the heart and provide the heart muscle with its nutrients. So calcium is supposed to be in your bones and teeth. It's not supposed to be in your arterial walls. So if you have calcium in arterial walls, it's basically a marker that there's a break into the artery walls at some point in the past, and the body was trying to deal with that damage. And at the end part of the damage, this uh, plaque starts to fibrose or scar, and then it will calcify. So if you do a CT coronary calcium scan and your score is zero, it's not a perfect test, but it's generally considered very low risk that you're going to have a heart attack or stroke over the next five years. But if your calcium score is greater than zero, and it is somewhat logarithmic, the higher the calcium score, the higher the risk. So a calcium score over 400 is high risk. A calcium score over 1,000 is very high risk. And six out of 10 people that do this scan are going to have an abnormal study if they're starting at about the age of 40. But it's not the calcium that you're necessarily concerned about. It's just that if calcium is present, you also will have soft plaque present. And it's that soft plaque, which is like a volcano or a pimple sitting on the wall of the artery, that is more possible that it will rupture. And if the plaque ruptures, that's what causes the events, the heart attacks and strokes. So if you get sent for a calcium score test and your score is zero, mm -hmm. you're generally considered low risk. But I would say there's still further testing to do. Basically, a calcium score of zero just tells you you're not late to the game. You haven't had significant plaque in your arteries. And I see this a lot online that you know people say like, oh, yeah, I you know got a calcium score of zero. I can do a carnivore diet and my total cholesterol can be 600 and my DLDLC can be 400 because I'm not having plaque. Mm -hmm. Well, you've not really assessed for the soft plaque. That test is not set up to do that. So there's other tests that you potentially could do that look at, do you even have endothelial dysfunction? Because that's the first sign. If you're having endothelial dysfunction, something in your environment is off and it's damaging. And then there's tests that can look at the intima or the inner lining of your arteries. Is there inflammation there? Are you developing soft plaque? So if you're developing soft plaque in your arteries, maybe that diet still is not right for you. So um, I always will advocate that people get a calcium score test over the age of 40 if they've not previously had an event, no heart attacks, stents, bypass, but it's not the be all end all test. Mm, that's good to know. I was, I did score a zero, but I, I really understand what you're saying about getting all a little bit more information. And, and so what are, what is the other test that you would use? So the test that people have most access to is probably the carotid intimal medial thickness test or CIMT. It's yep. an ultrasound of the artery that sits on the side of your neck. Mm. And it's measuring two things. It's measuring the thickness of this lining called the intima. The intima should normally be very thin, like less than half a millimeter thick. But if the intima is swollen, it indicates that the lipoproteins are possibly getting retained in that area of the artery. And then your immune system kicks off, basically thinking that there's a bacteria invading it. And so there's a war going on in your artery walls, causing that swelling there. More swelling 
the more likely you're going to start developing plaque. So it's a good estimate of what's currently going on. Again, the calcium score test is great, but it mm -hmm. doesn't really give you direction. Did this happen 10 years ago or is this mm -hmm. something fairly new? But the CMT can somewhat guide you like, is this more recent and you need to do a modification right now? Or is this something that, okay, their calcium score is high, but their CMT is pretty low risk. Well, they probably changed something in their environment to another different medication or different supplement and they're starting to stabilize that plaque. So it really kind of, those two tests together can kind of really guide you, uh, you know, what you need to do. Yeah, for those people listening, um, a CAC test is really inexpensive. It's usually like $50 at, you know, one of your larger um, hospital settings. And um, you do need a doctor's prescription, I believe in Illinois, but I think some places you might not need that. You can just walk in. But we're coming out of COVID-19, things are opening up. And during COVID, a lot of people abused alcohol and marijuana a little too frequently. And I wanted to talk to you about the role that that has in heart disease, if any. Sure, I mean, um, you know, alcohol is, you know, something that the body has to detoxify from when it comes into the system. And so, you know, my blanket statement is people should not pick up a drinking habit because they think there's some kind of magical cardiovascular benefit of giving polyphenols from alcohol. So if it's something you already enjoy in your life, in moderation is probably a neutral thing for many mm -hmm. people. But you know, if you're somebody who is more of a biohacker, health optimizer, and you track your sleep, you're probably going to notice that your sleep quality, your amount of deep sleep or your amount of REM sleep is impacted by the alcohol, especially the timing of the alcohol. If you're drinking you know, wine or whatever, right up into bedtime, you're going to go unconscious per se, but you're not getting the same high quality restorative sleep that your body needs. And then from a lipid standpoint, some people, alcohol really will spike up their triglycerides. It'll spike up their LDL particles. So you can't really tell everybody a blanket statement that two drinks a day is not risky for them. You have to test them before they, you know, make a change in their and their uh, diet. And then I think your other question was more about kind of the, the CBDs and the marijuanas and such. Yeah. Well, I tend to look at them as that, you know, they're possibly neutral in many people, but again, some of them will raise the triglycerides. And it's often just a marker too, that this person's circadian rhythms are completely broken and they're compensating by adding on another substance to try to, you know, help them sleep. And if they would work on their circadian rhythms, they may not need that compound to go to sleep. Yeah. And we're going to dive into, um, the circadian rhythm a little bit later. Um, but let's just, I want to stick with LDL and HDL for just a sec. If someone has a high LDL level, what can they do besides a statin? If it's not off the charts and they don't, you know, some people need a statin. There's always, you know, a place for a pharmaceutical in for some people. But how could somebody lower their LDLs if they were too high? So I always will uh, say it always depends. And it always depends on what is the current state of the arteries. Because on a blood test, that's just a snapshot in time. What was floating through your blood vessels? It doesn't tell you where that LDL is going. Is it, you know, is that going to your muscles? Is it getting trapped in the walls of the arteries? That's really the information you want to know first. So it will guide you how aggressive to be at quote, lowering their LDL based off the amount of plaque they have in their arteries. So they have an abnormal calcium score test, abnormal CIMT, you're probably gonna be more aggressive because they are showing that that LDL particle count 
is abnormal for them. So STADs are tools. You know, they're tools that are best used in people that are higher risk. So it definitely should not be in the drinking water. But if people need to go back to you know lowering production, you know, there's agents, you know, niacin, fish oil, bergamot can help lower it if they're on the supplement side. Prescription medications can be more the uh, next letaller. It's called bimpedoic acid. It's a stan alternative. Then on that second lever, can you affect the LDL receptors? That's going to be more the uh, berberine from the supplement standpoint. And then the injectable TCSK9 inhibitors, that's preluent, repatha. So at that point, when you use those injectable medicines, the little catcher's mitt just stays out longer and it's clearing the blood vessels more effectively or the LDL particles. And then you mentioned the medication that you personally were taking, it's the azetamide. So you block the cholesterol reabsorption at the gut level. So you just figure out which level that you need to adjust and that kind of guides the therapy then. Okay, but in conventional medicine, you would never get someone talking to you about this. They would most likely tell you to stop eating red meat and eggs, like especially the egg yolks, right? They would say, eat more plant-based. It's possible. And it is something that it's, you know, um, and I'm not going to fault them. It's, you know, it's oftentimes a education uh, gap and also just a time gap, you know, in my former life, you know, when I was doing internal medicine for the military, you know, I had 15 minute appointments, you know, you cannot dive deep into somebody's nutritional history in 15 minutes, you know, you're just trying to put out fires at that stage. And, you know, these tools are great when there's fires, you know, when patients come in with heart attacks, everybody gets a stand because you're trying to put out the second fire. But if you're trying to do prevention, it takes more time and education of the patient to understand what is really driving the plaque in their arteries in the first place. And so, Yes, nutrition is a definitely a, uh, it's a complicated topic, and I don't know if we'll actually probably do it full justice here today, but, right. um, but cholesterol uh, from your nutrition sources is not the biggest concern. So no, I don't tell people necessarily to automatically restrict their egg intake because there's cholesterol in it. You know, test don't guess, you know, what is your values? And then right. if you change up a diet and you're eating you know, six eggs a day and your numbers change dramatically, okay, then you're that one person that eggs are not right for you. I would never say it as a blanket statement for people. Right. And what about when your HDL levels are too low? I mean, that's equally as important to look at, you know, for women, we want it higher than 50 and for men over 40, really in functional medicine, they talk about the number of like over 70. So HDL is a complicated topic. You know, it's much more complicated than high levels of HDL are good um, and low levels are bad. Um, Again, there's no such thing as good cholesterol. There's no such thing as bad mm -hmm. cholesterol. They're just cholesterol, but there's different things that transport the cholesterol around the system. So HDL has many jobs. You know, think of HDL somewhat like a dump truck. One of its jobs is reverse cholesterol transport. So it picks up cholesterol, takes it back to the liver to recycle it. But your resting HDLC on a traditional lipid panel is maybe directionally accurate to what's going on in your local environment. So. You know, if you're somebody who's routinely exercising, you're eating, you know, a you know non-standard American diet, you're eating a clean type of diet, whatever that means for you, your HLC is a metric of essentially how healthy your current environment is. Somewhat of a metric of how healthy is your liver at preventing your blood from oxidizing or rusting. But there are some genetic abnormalities where people are going to have low resting HDLs, no matter what they do from an exercise standpoint, or no matter what they're eating. And unfortunately, you know, the trials that were done that were given pharmacological agents to try to raise the HDL. Yes, they could raise the HDL, but they never changed the event rate. In most of the cases, I shouldn't say most, but in some of the trials, 
It was actually that the medications made people have more events. They died sooner on the medications reducing the HDL than the ones that were not affecting their HDL. So today there's not an agent, a medication, or even a supplement that raises your HDL and has a clinical benefit. You can make the number look prettier, but it's more about the HDL functionality. And those, just, those tests are just barely coming online right now to know what the HDL is actually doing in your body. One functional medicine um, kind of hack would be that on one of the blood tests is something called myeloperoxidase or MPO. If your myeloperoxidase levels are high, your HDL is likely dysfunctional. Myeloperoxidase is sort of like bleach. If you have high levels of myeloperoxidase, it damages your HDL. And then when the HDL is damaged, your body pumps out more HDL. And so this sometimes happens in women, they come in, they say, oh, I got good cholesterol, my HDL is 80. And you do this test and the myeloperoxidase is high and you do a calcium score test and it's high. And they're like, there's no way. They told me I had high HDL and I couldn't get heart disease. Well, all your HDL is dysfunctional. It's all oxidized and damaged and it's not mm. doing its job. So that's why I say HDL is more complicated than just saying you want it to be high. You want it to be at a normal level for you and have no oxidation, no inflammation in your system at that time. That is really interesting. You're bringing in a whole new, I'm, I'm like ready to pull out all my labs and like re-look at them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I wanna move on to another topic. Um, I wanna shift to menopausal women, estrogen and the correlation to an increased risk of heart disease. Uh, so it's been shown that when a woman transitions through the menopause, she is at a higher risk because her estrogen levels are dropping uh, to almost nothing by the time she's in post-menopause. And there were some studies done in the early 90s, or one giant study done from the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative, that was a little bit skewed and um, had some misguided information coming out in the in the early 2000s that really scared women. And I don't wanna get into the WHI because I did a whole podcast on that, but the gist of it was that um, they finally came forward and said, there is a correlation between low estrogen in postmenopausal women and increased risk of cardiovascular disease who are not taking hormone replacement therapy or bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. And I wanted you to just touch on that for us. So the thought is that, you know, estrogen is cardioprotective because it affects the lipoproteins. So when estrogen levels are optimized, you tend to have a resting higher HDL, you tend to have a lower LDL. And then when menopause happens and that, you know, you know drop in estrogen happens, uh, it's, I don't know all the physiology on it, but I know it has some effect on the LDL receptor. And so, you know, classically, if you see somebody's traditional lipid panel before menopause and then after, after menopause, their LDL is going up and their HDL is dropping. And HDL, which has a metric of how well your liver can kind of clean the blood from getting oxidized things uh, from damaging the artery walls. So, Yes, estrogen is extremely important for cardiovascular health. It also helps, you know, the artery walls relax. It's, you know, vasodilatory. So sometimes when people's, you know, estrogen levels drop, you know, their blood pressure starts to rise. Also seeing it clinically when estrogen drops, 
women tend to have more palpitations or heart racing sensations. So you're, it's not in your mind, it, it is hormonal in that case. But I think you had uh, sent me some questions on it and I don't know if all women are always fully familiar with it, but you know, yes, breast cancer is something you definitely need to be you know, getting screened for, especially if you have a strong family history. But statistically, heart disease is the number one thing that's gonna take women out. Yep. So you have to go get your heart screened as well. Yeah. So what is causing those heart palpitations? I'm in perimenopause, so I'm not on estrogen yet, but I have those, that racing heart and so many women my age experience that and it is really, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's debilitating. You know, you think you're having an anxiety attack, but it isn't anxiety, but most people go into their doctor and they get anti-anxiety drugs for it. Correct. And sometimes it is a little bit of a chicken and egg thing is that people come in and they say that, you know, they're anxious, but if they're having supraventricular tachycardia and the heart is racing away at 160 beats a minute, that's going to cause a large adrenaline dump, a cortisol dump, and you're going to feel anxious with that. So, you know, people come for palpitations. You have to do a proper workup and figure out, is it something hormonal? You know, is it, you know, the, the drop in estrogen, progesterone, is it a thyroid issue? You know, is their thyroid overactive? Do they have high cortisol because of high stress or, you know, they don't sleep well, um, you know, electromagnetic frequencies, you know, you know, these devices that we all carry around with us, the cell phones and such, you know, you're putting that thing right by your heart, you're attracting radiation to your heart and you can potentially have more palpitations with it. So you have to kind of look at their environment and then a hormonal uh, cascade to see, is there something that's uh, triggering it? Because, you know, often we'll do an, like an echocardiogram or ultrasound of the heart to make sure that the heart is structurally normal. And so it's a lot of times it's what the heart is sensing from the outside environment. And you have to do the detective work to figure out what in the environment is irritating the heart. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's really annoying. So you, you were, <laughs> yeah, but you were talking about estrogen being a vasodilator. And so it makes sense that when estrogen levels are going down, so are nitric oxide levels. And nitric oxide is really important for all of us. And I wanted you to talk about that because a lot of times when women are in perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause, we have no sex drive. Our libido just tanks. We're not in the mood. We don't you know, feel like doing anything. There's zero arousal. Plus our sleep is disrupted. And so what is, what is the role of nitric oxide in this equation? So nitric oxide is a signaling molecule. It's a gas, very short-lived. And in the cardiovascular system, when nitric oxide is released, it causes the muscle in the arterial wall to relax. And when that happens, flow improves. And so 99% of your blood vessels are the microvascular system. It's basically like hair width diameter blood vessels. And if you don't have nitric oxide in appropriate levels, you don't basically bring enough blood flow to the tissues. So this is something I say for men, you know, ED equals ED. So when men develop erectile dysfunction, it's very commonly the small blood vessels have an issue and it's primarily lack of nitric oxide production. So it can be somewhat similar in women who have issues with, you know, clitoral stimulation, they're not bringing the right blood flow to that territory. And so there are things that sometimes break your production of nitric oxide so you got to look for those on blood work or there's things that you can potentially do. There's exercise, there's certain sunlight, there's different supplements that potentially sometimes can boost nitric oxide and you, you know, bring blood flow to whatever territory, things tend to get better. So, you know, put more blood flow in the brain, 
you know, cognition improves, more blood flow in the heart, you're less likely to have angina or chest pain. So blood flow is really the key to longevity. Yeah. And what about testosterone in women? You know, it's not our dominant hormone, but we have it. It's responsible for our zest for life, helping us building muscle mass, um, cognition, um, burning fat, heart health, I'm, I'm sorry, bone health. What does it have to do with the heart? How does it affect the heart when our testosterone levels are also tanking as we go through perimenopause? I don't really know too much on the data that low testosterone by itself in a woman has a major cardiovascular risk. Um, but I think of the things that you would say, you know, the sex drive, being able to hold on to your muscle, the cognition, I think all those things are the more um, important things in that case. And so, you know, if, you know, you have the, the will to go out and exercise and hold on to your muscle, that's all protective to the cardiovascular system. So I think you get the secondary benefit from that. Mm, okay. All right. I want to talk about your glasses because sure. this is, this is your sweet spot. And so you're known for wearing these funky glasses, but there is a story behind the glasses. And you're also known for promoting early morning sunlight, resetting your circadian rhythm every day and red light therapy. How does, what does this have to do with heart health? So your circadian rhythms are your 24 hour cycles. All your hormones, neurotransmitters and organs have their own clocks. And so if you don't have a healthy circadian rhythm, you don't have optimal health because your body is off cycle. So, you know, these glasses for the people that watch this video, you know, they're very dark tinted yellow glasses. Um, I first got into this in 2017 when I was taking a very long haul trip to Asia. It was a 14 hour flight. I knew the jet lag would be pretty significant jumping that many time zones. So at that point, I did not understand the science behind it, but I found out, you know, through some biohacker channels that you should get these glasses and wear them on the plane. So I wore them on the plane, got to Asia, I still had a little bit of jet lag, but in my estimation, it was maybe one third as bad as it should have been. And then I enjoyed my trip. And then when the trip was over, I was like, I got to read about this. Like, why did that work? And then that's where I really got into the, 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 the depths of figuring out how circadian biology helps people. And for people who want kind of an intro book to it, a great book I always recommend is The Circadian Code by Dr. Panda. Um, it goes deep into the science behind how this works. But your 24-hour cycles they're programmed by two main things. It's the light that enters your eyes and it's the timing that the nutrients come into your system. So your body's already trying to figure out what time of day it is. So before they invented light bulbs in the late 1800s, at nighttime, the only light was red. You had fire or it was dark. And once they invented light bulbs, they extended day into night and your cycles came off kilter. And a lot of the chronic diseases that we see today, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, autoimmune conditions, they only really sprouted up in the past hundred years. They weren't present for all of time. So a human 200 years ago, they would have arose somewhere around sunrise. You'd go outside, that light would hint your eyes and tell your brain it's daytime. Your cortisol would rise, your sex hormones would rise, and you'd go out and hunt and gather for the day. The sky is blue for a reason. The blue spectrum of light hits a receptor in the eye. There's a receptor in the eye called melanopsin. That receptor is always sensing what color the sky is throughout the day. And so at nighttime, the sun would set, the blue light wouldn't hit your eyes anymore, and your brain would know, oh, it must be dark outside, get the hormones for sleep ready. And you would go to sleep three to four hours after the darkness kicked in. But with our modern days and artificial lights, and now especially with the screens that we all use, these screens have 
very much more blue light coming off of them than other spectrums of light. So essentially, when you sit in front of a screen, you're always telling your brain that it's noontime. You're going to keep your cortisol levels high. So you're going to be alert. You're going to suppress your melatonin. So you're not going to sleep well until your melatonin levels rise. So wearing these uh, yellow tinted glasses filters out some of that blue light that comes from your technology screens or your artificial lights. So pretty much anybody who's seen me since 2017, if I'm inside, I always have some type of blue blocking glasses on uh, during the daytime. And then, you know, for those watching, I do, you know, have the, the darker lenses at nighttime. The darker lenses block all blue light, basically tell your brain it's midnight. And then for me, I will be unconscious in under half an hour if I have these things on my face. So I always stay pretty consistent. So I go to bed at the same time. So I put them on at the same time at night. But generally, anytime after sunset, if people have sleeping issues, if they wear the darker glasses, their sleep quality tends to improve. What about the lenses? Like I, in all of my eyeglasses, I have special lenses to block out light. Is that good enough or do we need to go a level further? It's hard to say for sure without using what's known as a spectroscope. Uh, there's different uh, uh, wavelengths of light that need to be blocked that affect that uh, blue light receptor in the eyes. So generally you're gonna be blocking up to 450 to 465 nanometers. So your glasses are gonna to have to be some degree of yellow to be able to block that. So there's a lot of, I wanna say marketing ploys out there where people are saying like, well, these are blue blocking glasses and they're clear. They might block some of the wavelengths of blue light, but they're not blocking the whole set of it. And so it might help a little bit of a glare when you're on the computers, but it's not gonna be affecting your circadian rhythms and your sleep receptors. You're not blocking enough of the blue light. So is this, is some of this correlated with why some people who take melatonin don't see results? Very much so. I mean, melatonin is a hormone. You know, I tell people that, you know, it's not a pill. You know, when you take it as a pill, you're putting this information into your system, especially your GI system. Your GI system knows that you weren't outside during the day making this hormone. And you're putting more melatonin into your gut than your body would have produced. So you would never have had a period of time where you had high cortisol and high melatonin at the same time in the body. And melatonin, while it can help initiate sleep, the main benefit in melatonin is that it keeps you asleep. And from a mitochondrial standpoint, you know, your mitochondria, you know, they're you know, the powerhouses of the cells, what people think of them as, they do many things, but your mitochondria are what help repair the damage that's going on throughout the day. They're building new power plants at nighttime and you need melatonin to make those processes work. So if you don't have melatonin, you can't repair your mitochondria. You can't repair your mitochondria. You don't make energy effectively. If you don't make energy effectively, depends what organ it is, but if it's your brain, you end up with dementia or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. If it's your heart, you end up with heart disease. So your mitochondria depend on melatonin and popping an oral melatonin pill, you know, isn't really the same thing as your body making it. Now, if you take one dose of oral melatonin, you know, because you're jet lagged or, you know, it's you know, daylight savings time, that's not a big concern, but it's when people say that they're taking oral melatonin for months and years on end, yeah. That just means they're living a circadian mismatched uh, lifestyle. And so let's go back to the menopausal women because we don't sleep, right? I've actually worked, been, I've had a year of really working on my sleep and I have 
think I have found my equation and your information has helped me. And I thank my dogs for getting me out of bed every morning at the crack of dawn and getting out there. I put nothing on my eyes. I just let the sunlight hit my eyes and I do see a difference. But most menopausal women or perimenopausal women are not sleeping. And so there's this, you know, while all of this sounds and it, it works, there's to transition from not sleeping and maybe taking a sleep aid like so many people do, a pharmaceutical, to saying goodbye to that and really working on this, like how long would that take? Because that causes a lot of anxiety. Sure. And, you know, I'm not necessarily anti-sleeping medications, but they're crutches. And, you know, they're used while you're figuring out what is the root cause, why you can't sleep. Now, there are cases, you know, where it's, you know, the person's estrogen and progesterone levels are just so mismatched that that is affecting their sleep. You know, the, the women who like, I can fall asleep, but I wake up four hours later and I'm wide awake mm -hmm. and I can't go back to sleep. It could be a hormonal issue and yeah. you got to work with a doctor that's really comfortable, you know, managing hormone replacement therapy for you. Um, but if you've already dialed in your circadian rhythms, you know, there are some supplements that are less bad for you long-term, but it's really about the, uh, the sleep stages, you know, getting restorative deep sleep and REM sleep more than just the number of hours you're getting. And when you take a sleep aid or you take a pharmacological age, uh, agent, uh, you aren't getting the same sleep architecture. So, you know, yes, you're unconscious, but you're not repairing the mitochondria the same way. So that's why I'm such a stickler on, you have to work on your light environment first. And when people say like, well, nutrition and exercise, I'm like, yes, very, very important, but you have to sleep like it's your job. Once you get your sleep dialed in, then you can play with the other variables. And how do you optimize your sleep? You got to get your light right. You got to get your circadian rhythms dialed in. And yes, there's times where you're going to end up on supplements or meds short term. But if you're you know, staring at your phone 12 hours a day without protecting your eyes and you're eating dinner right before bed and you're finishing half a bottle of wine right at nighttime, those are all things that are destroying your sleep. You got to remove things first. And then there's the biohacker stuff that you can do, you know, blackout shades, eye protection at night in your room, no lights in your room, no TVs in your room, turn off your Wi-Fi at night. Um, you can, you know, some people have, you know, bed cooling mattresses, you know, sleep cooler, I do. Yeah, tends to get you to sleep better. So there's a lot of biohacking things you can do as well. So what about these at home red light therapy devices? You can buy these little squares or little wall units, you know, what, how does that play a role in heart health and sleep as well? I mean, I know you have the red glasses, which probably is like the same type of thing. It's a little bit different. I mean, so think about the, the red light panels or the, the um, medical term is photobiomodulation or PBM. Mm -hmm. Also used to be known as LLLT, low level light therapy, low level laser therapy, same thing. But most consumer uh, grade things are going to call them red light devices. The easiest way to think about it is that these wavelengths of light are very beneficial to the mitochondria. You're putting energy into the mitochondria so that they can do work for you. So they're mainly used for musculoskeletal benefits. So if you have an injury, it helps lower inflammation to that territory. It brings blood flow to the territory and it makes the pain and swelling better sooner. So you recover faster. But from a heart standpoint, um, it can help activate mesenchymal stem cells. The stem cells go fix what's damaged. It can help boost nitric oxide production, which may have an effect on blood pressure. Um, so the photobiomodulation world is uh, very fascinating, but it really doesn't have so much effect on the sleep. And that would be a caveat is that if you have one of these devices, the best time to use them is kind of daylight hours. You're trying to simulate what mother nature intended. So if it's sunny outside, you can be shining this bright light on you. 
some people, the high intensity the, of the, um, the brightness of the lights can affect their sleep. Um, it's not going to affect that melanopsin receptor in your eye since there's no blue light in it, but some people's sleep quality will be affected by them if they're using these panels right before they go to bed. Affected in a negative way? In a negative way, yes. Oh, okay. So I bought one um, for my youngest son, who's a um, professional hockey player up in Canada. And he's only 19 and he's into biohacking. And he's always, you know, had injuries and multiple surgeries um, growing up playing hockey. So he's obviously where he's using it for, you know, muscular muscles, um, recovery and things like that. But he uses it in the morning. And he said just within a week, his sleep is so much better. So I was just wondering if there was a correlation. I mean, it is intense in the light spectrum. So the lux of them are pretty bright. And mm -hmm. so that is also some of the trigger that it's daytime when you're seeing that. So yeah. it may be helping kind of set the circadian rhythm, but you need the full spectrum of light from the sun. So it's kind of like the full rainbow, the recipe that you need. The red mm -hmm. light is just one of those uh, wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So that it's beneficial. You can't really hurt yourself so much with the red lights, but um, the main benefit is musculoskeletal, as you were saying. Okay, good to know, because I have one on the way for me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're coming to an end and I wanted to um, ask you just a few more fun type questions. Sure. Uh, what are your three favorite foods to include in a diet that would be pretty much for everybody out there that would help us with our heart health? Okay, that's a good one. So we'd start first with, you know, getting high quality omega-3s in your diet through seafood. You know, you know, there are quote fish oil pills, but it's much better to get it through natural sources. So uh, oysters would be the, probably the premier one. There's it's the right package of DHA for your brain, selenium, zinc. So oysters would be excellent if you enjoy oysters. Otherwise, yes, salmon, tuna, mackerel, all those you know, types of fish are excellent. The second big one would just be more about getting your right protein intake. Um, so you know, I have a good friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, you know, maybe some of your visitors are aware of her. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, she's kind of very big on talking about, you need to feed your organ of longevity, your muscles. So you got to get the right amount of protein in your diet to do that. So at least 90 grams of protein a day, you know, if you're trying to add muscle mass, it's going to be a gram per pound of ideal body weight. So high quality protein, what that means for you now. Animal-based is going to be more uh, nutrient-dense. Can you do it with a plant-based one? You can, but you have to generally eat more volume. And sometimes you might have to supplement branched-chain amino acids to get the full complement of leucine in the diet. And then the third one, I'd probably say it wouldn't be necessarily a food source thing, but would be high-quality water, fluoride-free water. Ideally, you know, I usually recommend spring water, glacial water, reverse osmosis water, because you just don't want to be putting toxins into your system that your body then has to deal with. Um, so seafood, clean water, and just the right amount of protein would probably be the, the starting points. Yeah. Now that you just brought up fluoride, um, I just thought of something, you know, in terms of toxins, most people are using mouthwash every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And so what are your thoughts on using these more generic, um, you know, from the local drugstore uh, mouthwashes that are filled with fluorides and other chemicals? not just the fluoride, but it's also the, the high uh, um, antibacterial ones, the antiseptic yeah. ones, they disrupt the oral flora. So 
earlier we were talking about nitric oxide. One of the pathways your body makes nitric oxide is when you eat your greens, you eat your beets, you know, there's nitrates or nitrites in those foods. You need the bacteria in your saliva to help break those things down. If you nuke all the bacteria in your saliva with mouthwash, that chemical reaction can't happen, which then can downstream affect your blood pressure. So I definitely have seen patients' blood pressure improve just knocking out the mouthwashes. So sometimes I get the question, well, what about this organic XYZ one? It's again, one of those cases, tests don't guess, you know, there's uh, salivary nitric oxide test strips are kind of like litmus paper that you can get. So you can test your values, use whatever you're gonna use and see do your you know, nitric oxide levels stay stable. If they do, maybe it doesn't affect you, but if your levels go low, you know, you know that is affecting you. So not a huge fan of mouthwash, very big fan of, you know, keeping your oral systemic health optimized. Yeah. So brush your teeth, floss to your dentist, but don't, uh, don't destroy mother nature's flora. Absolutely. Well, you've given us so many tips to walk away with and a lot of golden nuggets here. The things that people could start that don't cost anything, that they could start today implementing a better lifestyle routine for heart health and just overall optimal health. Um, so you do something every week, I forget what day, but you do these IG lives. So um, tell us about the IG lives the day, because I've watched them and they are fabulous. I, I've learned so much from watching you. Well, thank you. Yes, I'm uh, most active on social media on Instagram. My handle is uh, Dr. Twyman, D-R-T-W-Y-M-A-N. On uh, Monday night, 6 p.m. Central Time, I go live for about 30 minutes. Um, usually at least once a month, we'll do an ask me anything. It can be over cardiovascular topics, or, you know, if you want to do a biohacking longevity topic, happy to do that as well. Some weeks I'll do a kind of Q and a with a guest host and they'll ask me questions or I'll talk about something that they're interested in doing. You know, I've done many of them about photobomodulation or red light therapy. So I brought on some of the, uh, manufacturers and explained, okay, this is how you use this device for cardiovascular health or for brain health or a musculoskeletal injury. And then often do talks about, you know, where, why am I wearing the yellow bono glasses? You know, so, you know, that's kind of the intro to biohacking for many people. So explain the, the circadian biology. So Monday, 6 p.m. Central time, uh, my Instagram. Um, and then I do have a website, same name, drtwyman.com. I have some other resources there for patients if they're interested. Yeah, I'm going to put all of your contact information in the show notes for everybody. And this week, your IG Live was really great. It was you going over your own blood labs. Yeah, that's test by test. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, that's what I do is, you know, get to the root cause of people's right. cardiovascular concerns. And it's using these advanced blood tests. And so when patients sit down with me in my office, I'm just line by line going through these things and they're all color coded but I know it's like a fountain you know, hose of information the first time they sit through these. So I right, recorded right. a video this week that just me going through my own labs, you know, how I would interpret things. Yeah, it was great. It was very informational. And because, you know, you, like you were saying, when people go to a conventional doctor, they have 15 minutes. And if that is including the doctor going over your report and he, you walk out and he said, everything looks good. You, you go home, you don't even look at it again. Right. Yeah. But it was such a, treat having you on here, breaking down so many, um, so many things about heart health, especially about menopause and, and women and their increased risk factor. So I really appreciate you digging into that as well. And you should do an IG live on that actually. I will. Yeah. 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 Is there like a, um, a, uh, request box that people can like, <laughs> 
Well, anyway, thank you. It was so nice to meet you. And again, I'll put all of this, including that book that you mentioned, if you um, actually email me that book name and I'll throw that in the show notes too for my viewers. Sure. Will do. All right. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you everyone for joining. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.